Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us, let your Holy Spirit direct, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Hmm? Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that he might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I will forgive also. For if I forgive any, forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. All right. Last week we talked about how many people believe that this chapter was talking about the man in 1 Corinthians that Paul said to kick out of the church because of his relationship with his mother-in-law that he was bragging about. And I said, yes, I understand, and these verses sound like they may be talking about a very specific person, which could be him. I think it's more general, though. When I'm reading through this, I think it's more general that it's including anybody who is being caught in sin and having trouble. So we're going to look at this. So, uh, in the previous verse in 5 we, that we did last week, but if any cause grief, he has not grieved me, but in part that I may not be overcharged of you or, or, or too hard on you. It says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. And we look at this, and how many times do Christians really give a hard time to a fallen brother or sister? And it's really sad. It's been said that Christians are the only army that shoots their own wounded, and it is pretty much true. When somebody is wounded in the church, instead of coming up alongside of them and trying to help them, so often we pile on and criticize them. They're, they're probably already having trouble you know, accepting forgiveness in the first place, and then we come along and, well, yeah, you, you should be sorry. You know, How can you show your face in here after having done that sin? And you know, we are very harsh sometimes with, with people that, that need God's grace. And this is something that you know, we want to be very careful of. He says, verse 7 says, So that contrarywise you ought either to forgive and comfort, lest such a one be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. And this is something I hear it so often. I just can't forgive myself. You know, and I hear that over and over from people, and you know, it bothers me because you know, basically you're saying you're greater than Jesus. Jesus and the Father forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself. And I, I understand that they're stuck in where they're at, but they, if they understand the theology of what they're saying a little more, I think they would get to the place where they could learn just to give up what, they th what they're feeling. And, you know, like I say, I understand them being guilty and knowing they're guilty and all of that. But they're really saying, God doesn't forgive me and I can't forgive myself. Or they're saying, worse, God can forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. And that's even worse. Yeah. Uh, it'd be bad enough not understanding that God forgives you, but to think that God forgives you and you can't forgive yourself is a really 
bad place to be. Because all of a sudden you've made yourself, you know, God, you know, I understand you're perfect and you have high standards, but you know, and you can forgive me, but my standards are so high, I can't forgive myself. I know I, I, know I screwed up when I was down here in the first place, but you know, I just can't forgive myself because I, I shouldn't have messed up. And you know, we need to be careful because Christ died for our sin and if we truly believe that we are forgiven, we must be able to forgive ourselves and others. Because if we can't forgive ourselves, we're not going to forgive others either. And I've heard a lot of people, well, I can forgive others, I just can't forgive myself. Well, I'm going to say baloney. You're really not forgiving others. If you're not able to forgive yourself, you're not going to be able to forgive others either. And here's Paul saying, you know, that you need to forgive them. And unfortunately, like I say, in many churches, we hammer somebody rather than forgiving them. You know, well, we know what you were doing, the, you know, last week. You got drunk and, and caused all this ruckus, you know. Well, you're not going to forgive you. You're going to have to prove to us that you're repentant. And that happens a lot. And the more we put pressure on this person to prove that they're acceptable, the more we tell them that God doesn't accept them. And then they end up backsliding or totally walking away from God because they're going, well, if God's not going to forgive me, what hope do I have? And the answer is none. If God's not going to forgive you, you have no hope. And if his people won't show you his forgiveness, you have no hope because you're not going to see his forgiveness unless you've got a really tight relationship with, with, with uh, God. And that's not usually somebody who's in a sinful lifestyle having a tight relationship with God that can handle the accusations. And so we see here that they, sh that they will be swallowed up with overmuch grief or sorrow. And how many people have been laid by the wayside by the attacks from within the church? I have seen them over and over again. I've heard the stories over and over again. Verse 8, Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. And this word beseech is to literally call to one side. Uh, you know, he's saying, I'm really begging you. I'm, I'm calling you to my side that you will go out and comfort this person. That you would confirm your love, make valid. You know, one of the things we must do as Christians is... Ex give everybody exhortation to affirm them, to really encourage them. Uh, think over your lifetime as a Christian. How many times have you been affirmed? That, you know, you, and you may not even feel, usually you don't feel that you deserve it when you hear it. You know, you're going, yeah, right, if you just knew me. But it still feels good to hear somebody say something positive about you, especially if all you're hearing is negatives all the time. And that shows us what God is wanting to say to us. If we're reading the scriptures, we're going to hear the positive anyway. But it's always nice to hear human beings <laughs> say something positive once in a while. You know, I really like how faithful you are to church. You're really doing a good job. You know, I really like the way you're studying the word of God, whatever it might be. I really like that decision. When that person was mouthing off to you and you didn't attack them, I really appreciate the fact that you showed God's love. And they're going, yeah, right, I wanted to kill them, but I didn't. I didn't doesn't really matter because at least they acted outward correctly. And here he says, he's beseeching them that you confirm your love one to another. You make valid your love one to another. 
And this is so precious. It's the thing I've seen in this church is the change from really not liking each other to having loving fellowships going on. When we can't get out of Sunday morning service before 12.35, you know, 1 o'clock because everybody's busy talking to each other. Because uh, I remember when that wasn't the case here. You know, say amen at the closing prayer and the people were out the door. Uh, you know, showing love one for another, lifting up, building one another. Verse 9 says, For this end also I did write, that you might know the proof whether you be obedient in all things. Paul's saying, I gave you instructions where you're going to be obedient to them. I just want to see if you can be obedient. You know, if you can be obedient to my words, you'll be obedient to God's words as well. Because Paul, I don't think Paul was ever looking the fact that he was writing scripture. I know that other people think he was. I don't know that he was. I don't think he was aware that he was writing scripture. He was just writing and encouraging his churches. And God used it in a more mighty way and got hold of him. So, but he's saying, I'm sending you these letters and, I, and I'm hoping to see you be obedient. All teachers want to see people listen to what they say and apply it. Uh, you know, we can't get too upset if they don't because it's between them and God. But, you know, we like to know that what we're teaching is godly word and that they're wanting to hear it. Nothing's worse, and I've shared this, when God gives me something to say, I know that somebody's going to be tested in it. I know that I'm going to get tested in it. But I also know that people in the church are going to get in test tested. And the saddest thing is when you see them fall right in what, away from what you already have taught. And you see them fail over and over and over again. It's like, okay, God, I'm beginning to think like you do. Are these people worth it? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, how many times do I have to repeat myself? And as I said so many times, I'm amazed how often God repeats himself in the scripture. Same topics over and over again. Why? Because he knows how thick-headed we all are. <laughs> he knows that we do not listen very well. And if we do listen, we do not apply very well. And God's always saying, do you believe? Do you believe what I have taught you? Do you believe that I'm everywhere looking over you at all times or you think you're getting away with something? Do you believe that you are to love one another as I have loved the, the church? You know, and as he puts a hard-to-love person in our hand. Do we believe that we are to forgive one another as he puts somebody that's very hard to forgive us, uh, to forgive because they really hurt us? And those are some of the hardest people to forgive. They, you know, yeah, you know, you really put my life into a tailspin and you want, and God, you want me to forgive that person? And God's saying, well, yeah, I, I, I gave my life for them so that I could forgive them. And so he's looking at us and saying, be obedient. Now, we're not being obedient to please God and gain brownie points with God and try to earn heaven. We're being obedient because we're honoring the Father. And say, Father, I just want to be obedient. I want to do what you've asked me to do. And this can be very difficult at times. You know, obedience is hard to do because our flesh doesn't want to do it. When we're baptized in, into, the, into the Holy Spirit and God, then he changes who we are from the inside, and we start doing it with more and more joy. And God is really not looking for people gritting their teeth and, and dragging their feet in obedience. He's looking for that joyful attitude. You know, Paul says that God wants joyful givers. Uh, and it doesn't really matter how much we give as long as we're joyful about it. 
Now our joyfulness should give us the desire to give what he asked for and more. But you know, God would rather have us give very little and joyfully give it than to say, let me unpry your fingers and drag your, your tithes and offerings out of your fingers. And I'm, as I've said before, I think he does anyway. If we try to hold on to our tithes and offerings, I think God takes them because of opportunities where we just have flat tires or tickets or, or repair or whatever it might be. I think God takes his tithe. Um, but if we give it to him, then he gives the blessings that come along with it. And he wants it joyfully. And he doesn't want us to say, okay, God, you, you demand 10%, so here's your 10%. And, you know, that's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for grudging obedience. He's not looking for me, well, God, I guess I better obey you because if I don't, you're going you're gonna to punish me. You're going you're gonna to send me to hell or whatever it might be you're looking at it for disobedience. And that's not what he wants either. Uh, he's looking for that obedient desire in the heart that says, I just want to please God. And for parents, is this, you, if you have more than one kid, you know, you've got the one kid who's cheerful, always trying to be obedient. Then you've got the other one that is obedient because they must. Then you've got that rebellious one that never, never wants to do anything and is going to make it clear. And, and you might not have all three kids or not, you know, but uh, this is what Paul's saying here. You know, I want to see if you can be obedient. I'm going to give you these things that God's asking you to do. Will you be obedient? Verse 10 is kind of an interesting. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgive it, for your sakes forgive I in the presence of Christ. And this sounds very, very much like when Jesus says, whosoever you forgive will be forgiven. And a lot of that is just in the experiential world. God, Jesus has forgiven them because of, their, of the, his sacrifice. But who are we usually bound up to in unforgiveness, either ourselves or somebody else who won't forgive us? Now, have you ever been around somebody you just know they haven't forgiven you? Oh, yeah. And you just want to go, I don't feel comfortable in this situation. This person doesn't like me. They, don't, they, they think I'm really bad. They think I'm the, the, the gum on the bottom of their shoe, uh, whatever it might be that you're looking at. And, and he's saying, forgive. Whoever you guys forgive, I'm going to forgive because you're at that church. If you're having a problem with somebody and you will not forgive them, he's probably going to forgive them anyway, but he says, I'm not going to. But if you forgive them, you're the one that was wronged. I'm going to forgive them. It's not nothing, no problem to me. And Jesus said this to the disciples. Who are you going to free? They're free indeed because when we forgive somebody, we're taking away the right to punish them. And this is the importance of forgiveness. Am I giving up my right to say you deserve to be punished? God did because he poured it out, all out on Jesus. Jesus took our punishment so that God can forgive. And that means he's given away the right to punish because Jesus took that punishment. Now, we don't quite have that same thing, but we do need to forgive people and say, I'm not going to require you to be forgiven. And people will say, well, I can forgive, but I'm not going to forget. Sorry, you haven't forgiven. Because right. you're waiting for them to get what they're just desserts, and you're just waiting. I want to see how they're going to pay for their, pay for their, uh, their uh, problem that they caused me. And that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness says, God, 
I'm going to even pray, God, go bless them because I forgive them. I no longer hold whatever it is they did against them. That's forgiveness. God, I give up. I don't want, I don't want to see them punished. And I've said that prayer for many people that, that, you know, fully deserved it. Deserve to be punished. I'm going, God, you know, I don't want to see them being punished. You know best, God, it's up to you, but I don't want to see them hurt. I'm forgiving them. And this is so critical to how we can walk with one another. Because if we're sitting there just waiting for God to smash somebody, we're not going to be in fellowship with them. Our memory verse is, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. When we're dealing with other brothers and sisters, if we truly love them, we're going to want to forgive them because that's what God wants from them. And this is all coming down to what is our relationship with God. If we're unloving, if we're unforgiving, we're showing that we really don't know God. Now, I'm not going to say we're not a Christian in that point, but we don't know him. We don't know his heart and his desires for, the, for individuals. And this is why it's so important. Who does God love? Everybody. You know, who do we love as people? Generally, people that are like us. All right? In the same economic stratus, the same you know, general class of goodness, if we think we're good. God, you know, uh, I really like this person. They're not too bad for me. We're, we're very, but that, that, that drunk that's in the gutter, uh-uh, don't want anything to do with them. That, that drug user who's selling themselves to get the money for drugs, no, 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 God, I can't, you know, nothing to do with them. And God says, I died for them. You know, and that doesn't mean these people are going to be your best friends. But you know, we should be love them enough to reach out and say, God loves you. And because he loves you, I want to show you his love, whatever that might mean. And this is something that's critically important that we do not push people down in a way, but that we accept them. And because Jesus died for them. He did. He died for the world. What's going to send people to hell is not their sin. It's going to be the rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for the debt. They're going to stand before God at the white throne judgment in their righteousness, and he's going to say, not perfect, goodbye. You know, we need to be able to reach out to these people and say, God loves you so much. He paid the debt. Just accept the gift. And this is something that is critical for us to learn to love one another and be able to say, God, I, teach me to forgive. Teach me to forgive. This person hurt me really bad, but God, I want to forgive. Help me learn to be forgiving. Of course. Unbelievers are the only ones going to the right throne judgment. Right, but we still have making appearance. We will still make an appearance. We will make an appearance at the Bema seat of Christ. Right, we're still being judged. But our judgment is not for salvation or lack of salvation. It is our works will be judged, whether they be of the spirit or be of the flesh. 
He will take their works, put them in the fire, and that which is done in the flesh will burn up, and that which the Spirit has done through us will be, remain and will be rewarded for what remains, with what remain, is remaining. Everybody who goes to the Bema seats going into heaven, some with more rewards than, than others, some with, as uh, was said in one place, as, as with the smell of smoke. Okay, they got there, everything they've done was done in the flesh and burnt, but they were believer. And he says, okay, you're in. You have no rewards. You, as I describe it, you're going to be in the, the basement studio apartment, you know, but you're here. You know, you're in heaven. You've got the studio basement uh, in, the, in the mansion. And, you know, the more rewards we go, the more we get. You know, you go to the one bedroom, the two bedrooms, the three bedrooms. You get to the top where you have the whole, the whole floor. I don't know if anybody will have a whole floor of a building floor. <laughs> That's 3,000 uh, uh, miles wide and, and long, but, but you know what I'm saying. The, the reward, I, I, I picture this kind of like most of the big, really nice apartments. You, you know, ground floor studios, then your, your one-bedroom places, you know, for the next couple floors, and then your two-bedroom, and to the place where you get to the penthouse. <laughs> he has the whole floor to himself. You never know what it is in your faithfulness that will get you rewards. Uh, this is one of the reasons I like uh, the song Thank You, where it says, you know, I dreamed I went to heaven. And these people come up to you and say thank you. But the most important thing about those thank yous, you're going to find that some of them were things that you did not even know that you were doing. Uh, I had somebody one time tell me, we were just chatting, talking Bible and management. And she turned to us, she got ready to leave and said, you know, in 15 minutes I've learned more about the Bible and management than I have in hours with any of my supervisors. You know, I was just being me. Nothing special, I was just being me. We're going to find that a lot of our rewards in heaven are just when we're being ourselves and it touches somebody in a way that we do not understand. Because those are the special times. You know, I was just doing what I do and not thinking about it. And somebody says, well, you know, that really touched me. I really got excited about that. Uh, so we don't know fully what it is that's going to affect others that we have done. Just being faithful coming to church is going to be something that a lot of people are going to look at and say, hmm, I don't know about that person. They, they go to church every week. Maybe I need to look into it. Maybe they'll come to your church or not. It doesn't, doesn't really matter where they go. Uh, the little gift we give to, to help somebody and it gets used by a missionary to bring somebody to the Lord, just that little touch. When we give things to the Annie Armstrong offering, the Lottie Moon offering, all these different offerings we participate in. When we do these shoe boxes, Christmas shoe boxes, it is amazing the testimonies of people that got a shoebox 20 years ago, how it changed their lives, and they're given their testimony of how it changed their life and how God got hold of them. How guys that were in gangs had a brother or sister get a shoebox and get ministered to and hear the gospel and respond. It's an amazing thing when we see how just a little thing, you know, we spend 20 or 30 bucks putting a shoebox together, if that much, you know, and, 
and send it out and the gospel reaches some young child and possibly his entire family, an extended family, maybe the village. We don't know exactly what it's going to do, but you know what? When we did that, God says, here, check. You got, you got a great blessing on this one. Now, if we were doing it to get the blessing, then it's done in the flesh and it's not that big a deal. Uh, and it'll burn up. And I've said this to pastors one time in a meeting. I'm going, you know, how much of our service to God as pastors is going to burn up at the Bema seat? And I'm going, what do you mean? I'm going, how many times do we get up on a Saturday morning, a Sunday morning, or a Sunday night, or a Wednesday night, or whatever other night we have Bible study, and we teach because we, we're being paid to teach? Not because we're ready, not because we even want to, but we do it just because I'm supposed to do it. Now, that doesn't mean the people listening to us got wood, hay, and stubble. They may have got silver, gold, and gems because they're listening with the right attitude, but what was delivered to them might have been just wood. Solid, useful, but human-produced. We need to be careful of how we look at these things because God is saying, I want you to live for me. Are we ever going to be perfect? No. Not in this lifetime. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have to ask for forgiveness. But, you know, as we go forward, we should make fewer and fewer mistakes because God is changing us. He is teaching us to hear his voice. He is indwelling us and changing us. And I can praise God. Walking with him for just a 48 short years, and I've seen a lot of changes in my life, especially in the last probably 15 years. They've accelerated because I'm learning to listen. I'm learning, you know, I was very hard-headed and stubborn for the early part of my life, and I had to learn things the hard way all the time. I'm getting better. I still have to learn things, and it still takes me a while sometimes, but I'm also getting those times when, okay, God got this lesson. (laughs) Got this lesson, God. I'm not, you know, then he goes, okay, be ready for the next one. (laughs) So we need to learn to forgive because he says, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also for, I forgive, if I forgive anything, to whom I forgive it is for your sakes, for I in the person of Christ. So Paul's saying, when I forgive them, I'm, for, I'm also doing it for Christ's sake, to show you that God forgives you. And we need to, and again, I just bring this down to home because it seems to be the key. We must accept the forgiveness of God. It's the key to everything. If we accept the forgiveness of God, we can give forgiveness to others. If I accept the love of God, I can give the love of God to others. If I accept the grace of God, I can give God's grace to others. If I'm binding myself up with unforgiveness, I won't know his grace, I won't know his love, and I will never be able to pass those on to others. I will stand in judgment of them because they're either better than me or worse than me, and everything is going to be carried through that filter. I'm not forgiven. God doesn't forgive. And even when I know that he forgives, if I don't forgive myself, I'm saying, no, you don't forgive. And it's very hard to forgive others if you can't forgive yourself, if possible at all. And here's Paul saying, you know, if I'm forgiving this, I'm doing it in the name of Christ, and he forgives you. And uh, we look at this, and then it says, Lest Satan get an advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And here we see Paul saying, Satan wants to ruin you. And if you're not forgiving people, you are going to hurt yourself and others, 
and Satan is going to get the advantage. How many people go through, they don't forgive themselves, and they walk away from the church, or at least close and intimate fellowship? You know, usually they'll walk away from the church completely at some point, but it doesn't usually start there. When we don't accept God's forgiveness, we start by not reading God's word. Why would I read God's word? I'm only going to be convicted that I'm not forgiving myself and not living in, the, in his love and his forgiveness, so I stop reading his word. Then I'll probably stop praying. I might even stop praying before I stop reading his word, depending. But, you know, and those, those two are very closely related. Next thing you know, I'm going to stop coming to church. If I'm here every service, I'm going to miss a service because I don't want to be under conviction for the sin that I'm not, not forgiving myself for. And then eventually, I just, well, I'm under so much conviction, I just drift away from the church, and you don't really realize how you did it. Okay, you know, well, you know, I'm just tired. I don't want to go. You know, it's Sunday evening. I want to watch football. It's, you know, it's this, it's that. You know, there's a bowling league that I'm joining. You know, that will keep me away on this day. And the next thing you know, you haven't been in church for a long time. And where did it really start? Not trusting God and forgiveness. And Satan gets the advantage. And we need to be careful. We're not to be ignorant of his devices, his tools, his usage of things to stop us. And you know, the problem is Satan knows us well. Better probably than we know ourselves. I was just going to say, you know, sometimes better than we know ourselves because we have this habit of lying to ourselves. I would never fall for that. Well, let me put you in the right circumstances with the right set of circumstances and watch you fall. And if you have an area in your life that you think you will not fall in, I'm going to tell you right now, it's probably the area that Satan is going to get you to fall in. And I've shared with you, when I was a teenager, if anybody had told me that there was a time that I would not have gone to church, I would have laughed at them. And yet that's the very area that I fell into when I became a workaholic, working 60, 80 hours a week. And I had my excuses. I, you know, I closed Saturday night. I didn't get home till 2 o'clock. It was 3.30 before I fell asleep. I just can't go to church. I won't, I won't be, be able to stay awake. And working Sunday night. And then, oh man, Wednesday? I don't know if I can, you know, I, I put in 60 hours already this week. I can't stay awake for, and the next thing you know, I haven't gone to church. How easy is it for us to fall in an area that we don't put a guard on? And we need to be very careful about what we do because Satan is an adversary that is strong and smart. And we need to be very careful. We need to know his devices. His first device is to get us from prayer and, and the word. And his next device will be to get us out of fellowship. Once he's got both of those taken care of, we're going to have problems. There was a pastor one time I sat on and he goes, you know, if every one of you would actually start studying your Bible, we wouldn't have any counseling needs in this church. <laughs> you know, and I thought about it at the time. And it sounded pretty arrogant. You know, you were just being lazy. But, you know, at the same time, I understood what he was saying. How was he going to counsel him? He was going to bring him to the Word of God. Yeah. If they were in the Word of God in the first place, they wouldn't need to be sitting there having him tell them how to apply God's Word. Yeah, and I don't know you could get rid of all counseling with that, but I think it would take care of a lot of counseling. Nothing new under the sun. The more we read the God's Word, the more we find out that everything we're going through is in His Word. All I've got to do is learn to apply it. And that's easier said than done, I know. You know. But when we see something that God's word says, 
We need to apply it and say, God, I want to apply your word. I want to make it real. Help me make it real. Let me understand how real it is. And then we'll go through the test to see if we believe it. This is why in the Truth Project, I love their tagline, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Too often we look back and say, God, I'm really not sure that I believe this. And we may not be that bold with him. You know, and I like using the, the idea of an omniscience. You know, God, I, I believe you're everywhere present. Uh, and then later on, we'll tell us, you know, I really wouldn't do this if my mom or dad were watching or my uncle or my wife or, you know, like, okay, why are they more important than God? He's there. You know, but we just show to ourselves that we truly don't believe that he's omniscient and omnipresent because I would do this if, if I wasn't being watched. Well, you're being watched all the time. God, I know that you have good plans for me, and the first trial we hit, we get upset with God for allowing bad things to happen to us and forget that all things work together for good, that God is good all the time, and that God is sovereign. Nothing happens to us without his permission, and we rail at the trial that comes our way because we just don't see how it's going to be good or how it's going to be for our benefit. And sometimes we can't. We don't know what it's going to be, and we may not know until we get to heaven what the benefit was. Sometimes he'll let us know. Sometimes he won't. Sometimes it's just to be trained for something further down the road. But you know, do we truly trust God? It's revealed by our reaction when bad things happen in our life. Do I get irritated? Do I get upset? Do I go, you know, and, and fight hard against everything that's going my way? And God says, you know, well, I thought you learned your lesson. You know, you do realize that I'm, I am supreme and I've got nothing but good in, in planned for you. And you go, yeah, I know that. Well, you didn't act like it. Which is why one of my favorite, and I literally say this to God sometimes, God, I don't understand what's going on with this, but I know you've got a good plan. Help me just rest. Help me to rest. Because sometimes it's hard. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it's easy to not get upset when bad things happen. Or bad things seem to happen. Because we're flesh and it goes against everything we want. And we don't like it. But our faith has to be, God, I don't understand. Help me. Help me rest that you're still in control. Help me fully trust that you are sovereign and that you have not taken a holiday for this this last uh, six weeks of trials that I've been going through. Just help me rest. And he will. You know, God, I've had a hard time for, for three years now. You know, when, when, when is this going to be over? And usually it's because we're not listening. But even if it isn't, he says, I've got a plan. We look at Noah. Noah built the ark for over 100 years. 120 as far as I read the scriptures. Those weren't easy years. Uh, Noah, what, what are you doing? I'm building a big boat. Uh, Noah, why are you building a big boat in the middle of the plain with no water? God told me to build this boat. And you could hear the laughter. And it's getting to be three stories tall. Um, Noah, this thing's becoming an eyesore in our neighborhood. Uh, why are you building this big boat? God told me to. He's going to send rain and destroy the world. And the laughter and the, and the attacks that he's having on him. And then the animals start coming to the ark. Now remember, he did not have to go out and find them. God sent the animals. And so he's getting the animals in the ark. He's been loading the food in the ark. People are still laughing at him. Yeah. Noah, what's wrong with you? 
They might have been starting to wonder, though, when the animals start coming to the ark. Okay. Uh, these animals are coming to him. That should have made people wonder, and it still didn't appear to. Then God closed the door, and he sent the flood. And by that time, it was too late. And, you know, but he went through 120 years of being mocked. We get upset if we get mocked for just a short period of time. God, how can you let this happen? How can you let that person be so mean to me that for, for three seconds? <laughs> but we need to be able to look at these things and say, God, you're in charge. God, I trust you. Even when nothing makes sense, God, I trust you. And it's not easy. But it does show where we are with him in, in our maturity. Verse 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence unto Macedonia. So here we have Paul going back over his history of going before he gets to Corinth. He ends up at Troas which is in the southwest part of Asia Minor. And it says here that he wanted to preach the gospel there, and a door was open to him. And, and this door that's open to him is Macedonia. And if you go back into Acts, it tells us that he saw this big vision of a guy in Macedonia saying, come over here to give the gospel. And he knew that he was supposed to go there. Uh, we have a song talking about the Macedonian call that crosses the seas, and that's what, this, that's what that was referring to. And he says, the door was open to me, but I really had no rest. I wanted to see Titus. And Titus was one of his disciples that went with him everywhere. And you've got to remember, they didn't have telephones. They didn't have telegraphs. They didn't, you wrote a letter. Paul, at this point, because Titus was supposed to meet him in Troas, and he's not there, he's going to have to leave a letter with some trusted person in the church to say, give this to Titus to tell him where I went. And you can picture this, you know, by the time Titus gets the letter, he could be going to Macedonia and find out that Paul is not there. Right. You know, and another letter saying, let's go, go someplace else. Uh, we think, you know, that it was so easy. These guys just wandered, you know, right to him each time. But, you know, it wasn't that easy. All I have is a letter that you're going to this city. Well, how do you find somebody in a city of 10 or 20,000 people? Obviously, you're going to start, when you're looking for Paul, you're going to start at the church. Okay. But, you know, I was watching, Lynn was watching a cowboy movie this uh, show this, just yesterday, and I'm looking at him going, this character always finds the people he's looking for in the middle of an open wilderness from a telegram he gets. And I'm going, how unreal. He gets a telegram saying, go to this town he's never heard of, or even worse, in the case of the one that I was watching, he was to go to a wilderness mine. And I'm going, this is dumb. <laughs> you know, this is not real. But every time he's show, you know, this guy always finds who he's looking for, even if they're not where they belong. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it made me think about this, because I've been studying this. I'm going, Titus was having to chase after Paul not knowing for sure where Paul was going to go, because Paul's going to Macedonia. There's not even a church there yet. We get to Macedonia, who's, 
you know, he's going to have to go walk around. Have you met Paul? Do you know where Paul is? Uh, have you seen Paul? You know, yeah, that'd probably be the most. Who? What does he do for a living? Yeah. Uh, who? Oh, that. Oh, you want that crazy preacher that we drove out of town on the rail last week? You know, uh, he's gone. <laughs> do you know where he went? Nope, we drove him out of town. Okay. Uh, but you know, this is what it is. He says he did not rest. He was not getting good sleep. He was so worried about Titus. Paul obviously had great concerns for for his fellow believers and churches. Because he says all through there, I prayed for you, I prayed for you, I prayed for you, I prayed for you, I prayed for you. I had no rest, I was concerned. You know, and in one sense, I have this feeling that Paul might have been a worrywart. That he worried about his people, he worried about all the churches that he sent to, which then produces all the letters that he sent to him and, and encouragement he sent to them and all of these things. And it doesn't, I don't see this necessarily in it, but I just see bits of things that he was so concerned about others that he was constantly writing letters, constantly being in contact with them. But it's what created the Bible by the Holy Spirit. This is true. Yep, he wrote the, he wrote the words. He wrote, he wrote the activities going on. And yes, it's part of why we have the Bible, was his concern for the church. And I don't know that Paul ever really tells us to cast all our concerns upon him. Peter does. Peter tells us to cast all our cares on him. You know, Peter was very much, you know, kind of a free willer. <laughs> you know, of course, he had foot and mouth disease all the time, too. You know, especially when Jesus was alive, he kept, he kept uh, saying and doing things he should not have said. But I think that also taught him, God loves me so much, it doesn't matter what I do. You know, I keep saying stupid things, and he still loves me. So he learned very quickly, God's going to love me no matter what I do. And this is an issue for him, and this, you see this in his writing. Trust God all the way. And we see this over and over. And Paul's saying, you know, I'm, going, I'm having to leave, and I'm not happy about this. I haven't met Titus. I haven't, he's not going to where I'm going. I'm going to send him a letter that I'm going to Macedonia. And, you know, maybe he said, maybe the letter might have been, I'm getting ready, after Macedonia, I'm planning to go to Corinth. Go meet me in Corinth. Who knows what his letter said to Titus on where to tell him to meet him. Uh, but, you know, he's saying, Titus, something delayed Titus. He was supposed to be here. And how many delays did they have? Well, Paul was shipwrecked all the time. Every time he turned around, he was being shipwrecked. So he understood the problems of travel. You know, walking or riding in caravans was a dangerous thing in those days. It's, we don't even think about how that dangerous it was back then because it's not dangerous to us. But it wasn't so long ago, even in our country, that it was dangerous to go between cities or, heaven help you, cross the country. You know, when we crossed the country to get to California or Oregon, we had Indians, we had bandits, we had Spanish, we had all kinds of people that were harassing the, the wagon trains. And it wasn't a safe trip. It was a dangerous trip. Many did not make it across the country. Paul knows that this is the case. He's, the ships aren't all that seaworthy. The roads aren't secure. The ships are better than the roads, but the ships will sink. Uh, and he's worried. Did something happen to Titus? My beloved disciple, the one I put in charge of this church over there, you know, did something happen to him? He's supposed to be here. And, you know, it's breaking his heart. Breaking his heart as he does this. Verse 14, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, 
and make manifest the savor of the knowledge of by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor in, of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one it is the savor of death unto death, to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, the sight of God, speak we in Christ. I love this. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. If we are in Christ, we will triumph. Why? Because the storms blow against him, and he is not going to be affected by any storms in our life. He is bigger, stronger than anything that comes our way. If we are in him, we will be triumphant. The problem comes in when I go out the door and I stand out in the storm trying to do it my way. You know, God, I can handle this. This is not that big a deal. And we all have areas in our life that we think we can handle. God, you know, I've never, I've never fallen in this area. I'm just going to be out there and I can handle this storm. And we get blown over, knocked over, beat up, attacked by the, by the, by the uh, angelic uh, demonic forces and wonder what happened to us. And then we get back and we get crawled back into Jesus and he's going to make it work for good, so he's going to get victory out of it even when we mess up. And we've got to understand all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God, not some things, not most things, not just the things that God had me do, but all things work together for good. If I totally mess up, God will work it for good. It may be an example to me not to do it in the future. Who knows what that good's going to be, but all things work together for good, even when I cause them. I can't tell you how many people have gone, well, if you knew how mad I messed up, God can't do it. God is the redeemer of everything. He can restore the years the canker worm has eaten up and the grasshoppers. He can fix all of that. He can, he can take my backslidden days and treat them as if they've never existed and lift me up to where I'm supposed to be. He can say, I forgive it. It's gone. I'm going to use it. Now you know not to do this again. Now you know not to fall in that area. That's something that is positive if we use it as a positive. God will make us triumph in Christ. Why? Because God is triumphant. We are his children. We have the righteousness of Christ. We have the riches of God and the victory of God at our disposal. Now, we may not feel triumphant in all the times that we do, but he always causes us to be triumphant in Christ. When we're in that middle of that backslidden side, we're not triumphant. We're downtrodden and beat up. But when we repent and we get back in him, he will use it for a triumph and he'll have a great time. Remember Job. Satan comes before the Father in the throne room of heaven. God says, what have you been doing? Well, I've been wandering around the world looking for things, you know, basically looking for mischief, looking for people to try. And Jesus said, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, yeah, sure, God, I've, I've considered him, but you've got this big wall around him. You won't, you won't let me touch him. And God gives him permission to touch him and then gives him more permission to touch him. 
and then gives him a little more permission to touch him to the point where he says you can take everything but his life. And he takes everything. He takes his health. He takes everything he owns, leaves his wife, and he's, and he's alive. That's all he has. And we look at this and say, God, how can that be good? How could any of that have been good? But you know, Job learned some valuable lessons from all of this. Before this, he was somebody who believed in the prosperity gospel. If you, treat, if you worship God correctly, you're going to be blessed. At the end of this, he says, I want God. I want God. I don't want the blessings. And this is something we've got to look at. Too many people want the blessings. They don't want God. We need the giver, not the gifts. And if we focus on the giver, he will give us the gifts. If we're focusing on the gifts, at some point God's going to say, enough. I want to be the one that you're looking at, not, not the gifts. And he will pull the gifts back because we're not focused on him. We are to be victorious, triumphant in Christ. And it is fun to walk in Christ and be triumphant. To watch Satan fall as in the middle of a hardship, you just start worshiping God and praising God. And you know, so many times I would just start singing, singing praise songs, singing a couple verses of a hymn, singing some other song and especially if I'm sitting in my office, it probably drive the next people crazy because those walls are so thin, but usually I try to make sure nobody's in there when I'm singing. But, you know, but crossing the yard, singing a song, lifting God up because he is worthy of all worship and praise. Yeah. Yeah. But are we looking at God? You are just so worthy. Yes. Worthy is he that was slain on, on, from the foundation of the world. The lamb slain. Worthy. Worthy of our praise. And if we start focusing on him in great ways, what a blessing we have. What a blessing we have to read the word of God in the morning and see how God will use it in the day to minister to just worship him and just be in the spirit. John and the Isle of Patmos was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he got the vision of the end days. You know, and I can picture that he was singing before God and he was just spending his time before God and just saying, God, you, know, you got me on this island, help me, what am I, what am I, what am I to learn? You know, he could have been very bitter. God, you put me on this island, I'm not worshiping you. you, you know, the, I followed you and look what, you, look what it's gotten me. But I've loved that all through the scriptures, the apostles' answer was so much the same. Thank God I have been found worthy of suffering. For the American church, the Western church, that's not our attitude when we suffer. God, something's wrong. I'm suffering. You, I'm supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, where's, where's all the blessings I'm supposed to have? And you're sending me all these bad things. Scripture tells us, thank God I've been worthy of suffering. Daniel, taken into captivity, could have said, well, okay, I'm so far away from home, I'll just, I'll eat and drink this garbage that the, the king's giving me. And he says, but he says, no, I cannot defile my body. I cannot dishonor my God. Joseph, put into slavery. You know, 
Potiphar's wife takes a notice to him. He could have been thinking, you know, hey, this is the, this is the head guy's wife. She can make my life really easy here. She can really be a blessing to me. But he says, like every red-blooded young man would say, no, I'm not going to go touch her. You know, and I say that, you know, because he acted totally against the flesh when he did that. He obeyed God. When everything in him probably says, this is not a big deal. But yet, he honored God. We see this all through the scriptures. People honoring God in spite of what looks terrible. And in Joseph's case, it, it really did turn out badly at first. He went from being the servant in a house, running a house, to being accused of rape and being put in prison. Well, he was 13 years altogether between prison and servant. We don't know how long on each one. Uh, but we look at this and say, how many of us would have said, God, I've been serving you. Look at this. I was serving you there. I got turned into a servant. Then I'm serving you. And I get falsely accused of a crime. Well, God, why am I worshiping you? There's no reference in the scripture that says he did that. No reference in the scripture that says Daniel complained about what he was going through in Babylon. And God raised them up. You know, we look at the disciples saying, God, you've, we thank you, we're worthy of suffering. We need to be able to take that attitude. If we suffer and God's allowed it, he's got a reason. And if we really truly believe he's got a reason, then we can say, God, thank you. Don't understand. And I think God can understand, you know, God, I don't understand how this is going to be for good, but you've promised it. Thank you that I've been found worthy of suffering and help me to stay at peace. Because that's what it's going to be all about. Being able to sit in his presence and say, God, wow, now I see. Once we see the tapestry of our life that God is making from the other side, it's going to be a wonderful picture. And we go, oh, that's why I had to go through that. That's what happened. Oh, oh, you just needed a dark spot and I was the one you chose. Okay, God, thank you. Uh, it might be something that simple. You know, uh, oh, you needed a shadow next to that tree and I got to be the shadow. Okay. <laughs> you know, I know there's much more than that, but you know what I'm saying? You know, it's, God's plan is that he's building a picture and he's made, building a poem through us and we need to be able to sit back and say, God, whatever you want, you are sovereign. He says the potter creates dishes for honor and dishes for dishonor. Now he creates the glazed plates that they will eat on and he also creates the chamber pot that they, they fill with the garbage. Both are needed. And who knows what God's got us for. Maybe we are the chamber pot. But you know what? God has got a purpose even for that. It's a needed commodity. And he says the least shall be first in the kingdom. So we need to be careful. So many times we look and say, God, why am I not the pastor, the song leader, the, the teacher, the whatever that everybody knows? And God says, are you serving? Are you serving? Are you the least? People look at pastors and say, these guys are going to be greatly rewarded in heaven. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. You know, they may have more skills. They may, they may only be using... 40% of all the gifts that God has given them. They may be using them well. But the person who's given one gift and uses it 100% of the time for God, is going to be blessed more than that person who had a lot of gifts and didn't use them. And so we want to look at this and say, God loves us so much and he wants us to be, 
Then verse 15, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. God looks at us and says, this is my child. And you see this receipt, sweet savor in Christ. When God looks at a Christian, he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He does not see us as we are. He sees us as who he says we are, which he says we're perfect. But even remember, because he is omnipresent everywhere, and as I tell you, every time, God already sees us as he, we will be when we're glorified. We get saved. He justifies us. He's, they spend the, our lifetime helping us become sanctified. But God says, I justified them. Look, this, this is my perfect child. Look how glorious they are. They're clothed in Jesus Christ, but they are perfect without sin. And that's how he sees us. He sees us as we will be because he's already there seeing us complete. Wonderful truth that we've got to understand. God understands that we're learning. They were going through trials. The Holy Spirit is putting us through all kinds of trials. But the Father says, this son, this, son, this daughter is perfect. And I see, he sees us in our glorified state as the bride of Christ already. Not where we, are, where we are currently because we're stuck in time. We can't see what we're going to be. We can only take and say, God, I'm in Christ. You say I'm perfect. Okay, God, I don't understand it, but you say I'm perfect. I'm going to just say that that's how you see me. But you know, if you start changing the way you see yourself to match what God sees you, it's going to be much easier to rest in his love and start acting out the way he wants you to act out. Being like him. Because you say, God, I'm perfect. Thank you. Too many people spend their entire life struggling to do right. Instead of just resting in God and letting him change them. God, I just surrender to you. Help me to live the way you want me to live. Fell flat on my face. Okay, God, thank you. You've forgiven me. Okay, let's go. Let's get it right next time. Let's get it right next time. Help me get it right next time, whatever your prayer might be. And fall flat on our face. Oh, God, you know, I'm really sorry. You know, uh, I'm really suffering here. Thank you that I'm worthy of the suffering. You haven't given up on me. You know, can you think about this? God's putting you through the trials because he hasn't given up on you. If you've been dealing with something for years or decades, God hasn't given up on you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be struggling with it. Because if he'd given up, he'd say, oh, you're a worthless case. I don't care anymore. He loves us so much that he will not give up. But he wants us to learn to trust in him. And very important, we are a savor to him of Christ. To those, and also to those that are saved and to them that perish. And this is kind of an interesting statement. We are being watched by Christians and non-Christians to see how we live. Whether we know it or not, if you said that you're a Christian to people, you're being watched. Are you living out what you say you believe? It says, to one we are a savor of death unto death, and to the other a savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for all these things? Two other Christians, they usually will get encouraged by our walk when we share it with them. And we get encouraged by their, by their walk. But to the world... I've shared, you know, I used to do this all the time. When I was a manager, I'd tell them all about all the things God was doing. They thought I was crazy. 
from death unto death in their, in their eyes. You're, you're a nut. You're one of those crazy Christians. We don't believe you, so we're, it just leads to more death. To the life, to those who are already alive, it, it encourages. Wow, I really appreciate you did, you did better this time. You fell, but you, you took five steps instead of one. Okay? Uh, you took, oh, wow, you went around the block before you fell down. <laughs> Good job. Our growth. How do we measure our growth? For unfortunately, for so many Christians, we expect to be mature three seconds after we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That would almost be like, okay, we got you newborn your back. I want you uh, playing ball on the field tomorrow and eating solid food and, and studying uh, uh, calcu advanced calculus. Don't even understand what you're saying, Dad, but... Uh, you know, we need to be very careful, especially even as we deal with one another. How far has this person grown? Are they still an infant, you know, bottle feeding, not even able to feed themselves yet? Or are they advanced and eating steak and lobster? You know, we don't know in most cases. And Peter is going to say, when you should be eating solid food, you're still on milk. And so many Christians aren't even on milk. They're on watered-down milk. You know, give them, give them even milk and they choke on it. And we need to be careful. They need to grow. And they need to grow by being encouraged and lifted up. And hopefully, because who is sufficient for these? Jesus. Jesus is the only one that's sufficient. We need to be able to put all of our trust in him. And too many times we don't put our trust in him. We go, God, I can handle this one. God, I think you can handle this part of it, but I think I can handle this part of it. And he says, no, take my yoke upon you, which is easy and light. I'll take the burden. You just follow and walk alongside. And that's what the yoke of that picture is. He takes the heavy part of it. He's the one that directs the walk. And all we do is have this yoke on us. And it's basically stuck to him. So it's not even, even there on us hardly. All we got to do is follow him. And as long as we follow him, we're not choked, we're not strangled, we're not drugged. When we try to go off our own way, then we get pulled through the yoke. But you know, we need to trust. We need to trust in him and, and follow him. <clears throat> For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity... But as the God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And basically saying, we're not watering down the message. We're not trying to make it acceptable to you. We're preaching Christ and Christ crucified. We're teaching the word in its completeness. And Paul says, I am not going to water it down. I am not going to alter it. In our day and age, too many churches are watering down the gospel. Watering down the word of God to try to... I would say trick people into following God instead of this is what you're supposed to do. But we also know that this is not new because Paul's saying hey, there are a lot out there that are watering down the word of God. They don't want to speak truth. Why? Because when you speak truth, you tend to lose people. Jesus oftentimes would speak truth and people would leave. Very often in the Gospels, he would say the truth and people would abandon him. And on a couple of times, he turned to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? Oh, no, you know, where else are we going to go? We've given up all. Sometimes the truth 
will drive people away because they're not ready to hear the truth. It's not the truth that drove them away, it's their attitude toward the truth. And truth sometimes, even when spoken in love, can hurt. Because we don't like to hear something that says, you're nothing but a bunch of dirty sinners headed for hell without Jesus. Which is what we are, but it's not what we want to hear. Okay, you're not following Jesus. You haven't surrendered your life. You're going to go through hardships, but you know, I've got a plan for you if you would just relax and, and give yourself to me. Oh, what a blessing it is when we surrender ourselves to God and say, God, whatever, whatever you want. And who knows what that whatever might be? Johnny Erickson Tata got a whatever, 17-year-old, quadriplegic, and now in her 60, late 60s, I think it is, you know, and it's, God, I'll take whatever you've sent my way. Pain, excruciating pain that she goes through when you listen to her testimony. Most of us couldn't have handled that. Most of us wouldn't want it. Nobody wants it. She didn't want it. But it is one of those things where God says, I want to help. I've, my strength is sufficient. Jesus is telling us, just trust in him. Hide in him. Let him be the one that bears the storms. Let him be, be the one that bears the great trials that we're going through. His strength will keep us, and we will be victorious in him because God always causes us to be victorious in Christ. He's got a good plan for us. He knows what's doing, what he's doing. We may not see that victory until we get to heaven, but there is victory. And the greatest thing I have learned over my years is if I just rest in him, I can joy even in the middle of the storm. I can be like the, the apostles. Okay, God, thank you. I'm worthy of suffering. I'd like to get done with it, but thank you that I'm worthy of suffering. And just take joy and just walk with him. It's not easy, and it's hard to do. Job got there after, after days of being harangued by his, his disciples and friends about how, he's, how bad he must be. But he got there. The disciples got there. The apostles got there. We just rest in Christ and let him be sufficient. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to come together and worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go forward today. Teach us in all that you want us to know and help us learn to always rest in you and your sufficiency. In Jesus' name, amen.